everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hey, it's Rebecca. I have been overwhelmed by the sheer number of people who've gotten in touch with us this week. To all of you on Facebook and Twitter who have been sending us messages and tweets, thank you, thank you for getting in touch. I promise to reach out to as many of you as I can in the coming weeks. Thanks to those of you as well who have made donations to the show through CrimeWritersOn.com using our PayPal link. As you can probably guess, we still don't have a podcast sponsor. I know, it's tough to believe because we're so great. But you can do your little bit by joining those who have left reviews. You can put a tip in our donation tip jar, or you can use our Amazon link at crimewriterson.com to buy the stuff you would have bought anyway. And then a teeny part of your purchase goes to support this show. And speaking of that link, back by popular demand once again is Toby Ball reading some of the items listeners have purchased on Amazon using the link at crimewriterson.com. Federal Rules of Civil Procedure with Selected Statutes, Cases, and Other Materials, 2016 Supplement. Dr. Bronner's and All One Organic Lotion for Hands and Body, Lavender Coconut, 8-Ounce Pump Bottle. There's nothing funny about this. Bunny brand women's Beastie Boys root down t-shirt tank top vest black. Large. Sure, A2WS-BLK black locking foam windscreen for 545 series, comma, SM57. Apple iPad Mini 2 with retina display ME279LL-A, 16-gigabyte, Wi-Fi, white with silver. Clover, large pom-pom maker. Solar Group, RSKB0000, curbside locking mailbox. Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and much, much more. 
Today, we're going to talk about Serial Season 2, Episode 4, The Captors. But first, if you listened last week, you know we spent a full hour discussing the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer. And guess what? Because the response from you has been so overwhelming, and because it's clear the story around Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey is continuing to unfold, we're going to talk about Making a Murderer just a bit more today before our serial discussion. So if you haven't yet finished Making a Murderer and you don't want to be spoiled, you should probably fast forward just a bit because we do not want to ruin it for you. So joining me now to talk about all of the stuff we're going to talk about today is my true crime co-author, real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. So you're back down with us after being on Undisclosed, huh? <laughs> going to hang out with us uh, low-rent folks. Slumming on our it. Pod- yeah. Slumming it with my own podcast panelists. <laughs> also joining us today in the studio once again is journalist, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And scone aficionado. Yes, we should yes. Add that. There's new scone varieties out this week. Also joining us in person, which is very exciting, it's like the band is back together, is noir novelist and professional doubting Thomas, Toby Ball. It's nice to see you, Toby. It's an honor to be here. Before we get to Serial Episode 4, we have to talk more about Making a Murderer. It has been covered all this week by all the networks, with many of them landing interviews with Ken Kratz, Dean Strang, the documentary behind the series, among others. So there's been a lot going on. We've learned more about the jurors even, including one who was a volunteer for the sheriff's department and a father to a deputy assigned to the courtroom. Laura, is that somebody who should have been on that jury? That's uh, that's insane. I, I'm really surprised that they didn't strike that juror. That seems I'm surprised the judge didn't see a conflict of interest there. There must have been some reason. Um, I know the defense said there was something where this guy had some money taken during a Dewey stop, so he might have ill feelings toward the police. But it seems like a pretty blatant conflict of interest and somebody that's going into this um, already. He said he didn't have a bias, but it it seems pretty ridiculous to me. What about the juror, though, who said that he did absolutely think that a cop could plant evidence on a guy if it was the right guy? Yeah. Because it's the same guy. Yeah. They're both the same person. So I could see you're right. I was like on its surface. Why would you ever take this? But I think it was a strategic decision. Right. Maybe it's a Christina Gutierrez kind of decision, but voir dire and jury selection is so complicated. Well, at least it, well, he wasn't the major pop star, right? The uh, major recording artist that was dismissed from the jury, who, as it turns out, is just like a guy in a local band who is not <laughs> a major What is going artist. on in that state? <laughs> I don't know. He went to Europe on vacation. <laughs> He's big in Japan. <laughs> so a lot, a lot of what we heard about this week, and last week I, I said I was reticent for us to speculate on who some of the alternative suspects were, but there's been a lot of writing and reporting about this, and some stories about who some of those alternative suspects that the defense wanted to put into the trial mix could have been. Now, Toby, I know that you did some reading about this. Are you comfortable running down who those people are for us? Well, there was an article, which I think was in Rolling Stone, which talked about uh, Stephen Avery and and who he was concerned might, might uh, set him up within his own family. And he included both his brothers and both Scott Tadich and Bobby Dassey, and and he suspected all of them, and all of them have criminal records to one extent or another, which of course doesn't make them guilty. You know, a lot of people also speculated about the former boyfriend, which, you know, in some ways seems like extremely unfair to him. <laughs> yeah. 
so anyway, that that was kind of went out there. Somebody else put out who the defense wanted to bring up as possible third parties, and they were sort of put out anonymously. It was like suspect one, suspect two, or something like that. And you could kind of match it up with the Rolling Stone article and figure out who each one was. But it did. It included uh, two brothers and then uh, Bobby Dassey and Scott Tadich together. Now, what was interesting was that the Bobby Dassey and Scott Tadich, they were the ones who had separate alibis, but then say that they saw each other passing each other on the road. And that was their corroboration of each other's independent but we we weren't together hunting. We were each hunting independently alibis. Yeah, that, we that passed was, each other. Right. And it was at a different time than when the bus driver had actually seen seen her taking pictures on the lot. So it was, it was all a little sketchy. Right. One of the things that would happen this week is that we heard from a bunch of people on email, on Twitter, on Facebook. And Laura, I heard from several <laughs> lab workers and phlebotomists who absolutely say that it is normal for there to be a hole in a vial like the one that we saw as evidence that the uh, blood was definitely taken from that vial in the evidence room. Those vials standard, they come with a hole. That's how the blood actually goes into the vial because it's like a vacuum sealed, pressured. uh, I don't want to get it wrong. Does that matter given what we saw about how that evidence was opened? Yeah, I think the more troubling thing is that their seal was broken on this. The tape was broken, and there seemed to be, or we didn't hear about, any record as to who accessed that while it was in evidence. And that's something that's pretty standard protocol. And, you know, I think that could have called more into question this piece of evidence than this hole in the top, um, because it was clearly compromised. Kevin, last week you brought up a bunch of the evidence that wasn't introduced, at least in the uh, series that we saw, against Stephen Avery, the things that made him look a little bit more guilty. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot this week about that. We saw some interviews with Dean Strang, my favorite lawyer, and everybody's favorite lawyer. Apparently, I'm not alone in my crush on uh, Strang. Yeah, that's really the weirdest thing to come out of this. It's not, it's not that people don't believe that cops can plan evidence. It's like, why, why does this little you know, bookworm all of a sudden the heart throb? I don't know, Kevin. Why are you a heartthrob? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the monogrammed uh, cuffs here on his on his shirt. <laughs> no, he actually gave a really great interview with Slate, uh, which we'll post on our website, where he addresses that. And um, you know, beyond saying that, you know, his wife is just very doubtful that it's true. He sort of is just like, now this is just getting like millennials are approaching me, and he's like, I. He doesn't get it at all. But, you know, he's he's a nice guy, smart guy who believes in his and he's got his clients back. And that's appealing. As all I'm right. Saying. I'm jealous. Whatever. Ask, <laughs> ask your question. OK. Jezebel. So, <laughs> all right. Well, given let's, let's talk about your heightened emotions then, because given um, the fact <laughs> that everybody seems to have an opinion about this case, you know, not everyone in the world has Netflix and there seems to be a lot of passion being generated about the case in general. How much of this passion is generated by feelings rather than by critical evaluation of the documentary and the evidence presented in the documentary? Well, yeah, it's I am curious to figure out, you know, what the actual viewership on Netflix is, because you know, even with the jinx, which is on HBO, you know, not everybody got, you know, has a subscription to HBO. Uh, I, I would bet the numbers that have a subscription uh, to Netflix is probably fewer. I don't. I don't know that for I certain. I think it's probably much greater. Oh, all right. Well, um, I know a lot of cheap people who subscribe to Netflix because they don't have cable. 
Are you one of those, Toby? No. <laughs> but, I, I know people that are using other people's passwords uh, to know. get into Netflix. I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, certainly, you know, when you look at, at, at what's going on in Wisconsin, where people already feel like they know what's happening in, or what has happened in this case, you know, there are a lot of people who are speaking just from their own experience and their own perception of what they remember in the news. You know, one of the first responses to somebody's either defense of or put down of Stephen Avery is, well, did you watch the documentary? Right. That's true. And, Laura, you know, we were talking, you know, before we began recording about some of the stuff that's come out around the family as part of this additional reporting and how it's kind of no wonder, I don't want to say that in any way anybody deserves to be potentially framed by the cops, but they were a thorn in the side of the law enforcement in that town, it really seems like there were a lot of, you know, we were very focused on the parents, and the, the, the sweet mom in the in the miniseries, but then you sort of read about the records of the other people in the family, and there's a lot going on there. Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed like everybody that lived on that plot of land had some sort of criminal record. And, you know, from it sounded like domestic violence to simple assaults to it just sounded like these were not very nice people to be around. And they were people that were frequent flyers in the criminal justice system. You know, after last week, when we were talking about why were the police targeting this family, sort of lent a little bit more credibility or credence to why they were sort of under the microscope with the local police. And I don't know if they just chose not to show that in the documentary, um, but it definitely changed my opinion. One of the things that I want to talk about is um, the evidence that wasn't in the documentary. Kevin, you again mentioned some of that evidence last week. We have gotten some feedback about some of the things you mentioned. Um, I think most notably the key that didn't have any of Teresa Halbeck's, the keychain, that woven keychain that we saw didn't have any of Teresa Halbeck's DNA in it, but only had Stephen Avery's DNA on it. And somebody pointed out, and I pointed out to you also, that non-blood DNA under the hood, presumably if it could have been planted on the keychain, it also could have been planted on the hood if someone had access to that material. Probably not as easily, though. I mean, where you could take a couple of droplets of blood. Maybe. I mean, I can see where, you know, if you had that key, any place that Stephen Avery goes and touches, he's going to leave behind some DNA. I, I can see somebody, you know, taking that key and then rubbing it all over something that Stephen Avery has. We know he doesn't have any underwear, so it wasn't that. But, you know, something else where there would be skin cells or whatever. And, and I don't know if scientifically that's a way you can transfer it, but blood is the easiest. I, I think you're really going for a much more sophisticated cover-up if you're going to be planting all sorts of other kinds of evidence. Right, right. But the other thing that somebody uh, we've gotten, I've gotten about three or four emails about, is people wondering about the key itself and it being the only key on that keychain and how... You know, is that something that we can find anywhere? And I, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe she did just keep the one key on the keychain. Like, we can't really know that. But what I wanted to ask you, Toby, is that do you think that the filmmakers were or the story in this film was in any way hindered by that lack of other evidence? Because wouldn't it have created more of a back and forth did he or didn't he conflict for the viewer watching that documentary unfold? You know, I, I initially thought that. And then listening to Strang kind of rebut some of those pieces of evidence made me think that probably at the trial, when they were sort of introduced and then rebutted, they didn't sort of come across as being all that important. So they were left out, was my guess. I mean, I think if you're going through a trial that's that long and you're trying to find, you know, the, the really important moments, 
Like, sure, if you don't have a rebuttal, you can throw stuff out there and say, wow, you know, take, check this out. That's damning. Yeah. But then we have, you know, the defense just explain, like, why it isn't damning. It's like, oh, OK, well, that's why they cut it. So it, it didn't seem to me – I think there's some issues with the, the way that they presented things in a, in a somewhat – biased manner. Those things, at first I thought that was true, but then the more I kind of learned about it, I I don't necessarily think that in this case that that's the case. We watched an interview with Strang this week, too, where he pointed out that some of the evidence that was the same evidence you mentioned, Kevin, wasn't actually part of Stephen Avery's trial. It was part of Brandon Dassey's trial. Yeah, that's right. So it wasn't even introduced as evidence in the prosecution against him. And so, so his jury never saw it. And I think Strang sort of intimated in that interview that some of that evidence wasn't it had been excluded or the, the prosecution knew it wouldn't fly in Stephen Avery's trial because he, they didn't, he didn't have a good lawyer. And so they were able to introduce it in Brandon Dassey's trial. Well, I'm just going to um, disagree with Toby on the storytelling aspect to uh, an extent where I think he would have generated a lot more conflict and a much more interesting, not maybe more interesting, but a, a more complicated narrative if you're also having to wonder as a viewer whether or not it's also his brother involved and not just it ends up being is it Stephen Avery or the cops you know we talked about this last week we really wanted to know a little more about what the the whole family dynamic was i mean i can just imagine if you're also wondering well maybe it's his brother or uh, other than you know this this very very effete kind of way of pointing at the the ex-boyfriend of Teresa or something like that. If you really introduce a couple of other characters and change the geometry of who was possibly responsible, I think it would have created an even richer narrative. And the fact that we know now that there were all these other things going on in this evidence that wasn't necessarily highlighted, it maybe got a little lip service within the documentary, you know, it leads me to believe that their goal was like our narrative is going to be you got to either believe Stephen or the cops. Well, one of the things that hasn't changed this week, and Laura, I'm going to uh, throw this your way because I know that you're watching some of the same things that I'm watching in this regard, is that um, I don't think my opinion of some of the other characters in this documentary has changed much given their public behavior. I'm thinking of the interviews that we've seen Kratz do. I'm thinking of uh, you were talking <laughs> about uh, the Facebook page of Let Len oh, Kaczynski's yeah. Facebook page. They don't really seem to have much. Um... They're tone deaf, <laughs> right? Self awareness is not, yeah. obviously not a uh, qualification. So you've been watching some of this too. What do you think? I mean, do you, do you think that after this much time and this this big uh, high profile, that there would be more self reflection there? Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's really been much of anything. Um, I'm just surprised. You know, Len Kaczynski goes and gives an interview, and it sounds like they basically beat it out of him at the end that he may have made a mistake. But even then, he was reluctant to say anything like that. And I just still, when I think about Kaczynski, can't believe that he was not reprimanded by some sort of aid, you know, whatever the lawyer reprimanding sort of board is in Wisconsin. You know, here in New Hampshire, we have the Professional Conduct Committee and and that he's still out there practicing. I'm just baffled. The question, though, is does Ken Kratz still have a texting plan? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. He's got a whole new facial hair thing going on. (laughs) Um, So, Toby, The Washington Post made the point this week that we watch a documentary like Making a Murder much differently than we would have if it hadn't been for serial. And I think there was something about how the Sarah Koenigs being upfront about what her biases were made us more aware about the biases in this documentary. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I don't know how much cereal kind of changed the way I thought about things, but I, I don't know if people in general start looking at that a little bit more. I mean, I think it's raised the bar a little bit for people who are making documentaries to be more explicit. You know, the two filmmakers have deservedly gotten a lot of press and a lot of attention. They've talked about how they didn't have like a, a dog in the fight about whether he was guilty or innocent. Do you which believe I think, that? Do you believe that? Yeah, that's true? you know, I it, it doesn't it doesn't ring true to me. You know, I think they they've made some funny choices if they didn't want Avery to be found not guilty. I guess that kind of pressure maybe wouldn't have been on before serial. But I think you know, I think most people who make documentaries have to know that that's that's an issue. And what Sarah did was she was upfront with it and sort of addressed the audience with those issues. And, you know, hopefully that that kind of like kind of sets the bar on that. I think a lot of making a murderer was probably done before Serial came out. I'm not exactly sure the timeline on that. Yeah, well, they've been working on it for many, many, many years. They're graduate students. When they, they moved to Wisconsin to start filming, they had no money and they just decided and they, they couldn't have had any idea it was going to unfold this way. One of them was also a lawyer one of the filmmakers. So I think that that perhaps played into, you know, this sort of desire to show the justice system being flawed out there. So I I think they knew more than they were saying. Yeah. And I think that, of course, they want to have a satisfactory ending to their documentary. And, you know, in a way, there isn't. Because, you know, after 10 plus years of appeals and whatnot, we end the documentary uh, series with, you know, mom and dad going to visit him in prison. You know, even with season one of Serial, Adnan, oh, I should say Adnan. Yes, I'm going to make a point here that we, some people uh, rightly have pointed out that we've been mispronouncing uh, Adnan Syed's name. We say Adnan, and it's really Adnan, and that's disrespectful to him. So you're right. Sorry about that. I'm well, going to try to you know fix what? that. I'm going to counter that. I When I interviewed the Undisclosed team, I said I mispronounced I said Adnan the entire time, and I've never been corrected by the people who actually know him. So. You mean there's a know-it-all on, 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 in the Internet that pointed something out? Okay. But even at the end of season one, uh, when uh, Adnan wasn't you know, exonerated and freed, and she found a way to wrap it up in a very satisfying way. I don't imagine you sit on hours and hours of documentary footage for 10 years unless you hope that there's going to be some fantastic ending, which is that, oh, yeah, We believe, again, that the cops did it. Let's talk about the jinx then really quick, because that did have like that wow kind of ending. But it was also not as strong a documentary. Remember, we were all sort of critical of the sort of a ham-fisted way that this filmmaker then was calling himself a journalist and, you know, doing these interviews with Durst. And he had like that facial hair and everything was very like earnest in in a weirdly artificial way with those like recreations and so forth. But it delivered the ending. And you remember at the time, Kevin, were like, that's all it needed. It has an ending. So therefore, it's great. You know, it, like that is important. It had a fantastic ending. I mean, it was incredible. And, and, you know, I think that everybody wants when they're creating their art, they want to have a really satisfying, fantastic ending. I mean, how do they end episode four in Making a Murderer? With a fantastic scene where they have this revelation with the blood regardless of whether there was supposed to be a hole in the top of the vial or whatever, just that moment was fantastic cinema. Right. And sure, Jinx ended with probably one of the all-time great ending scenes of, of true crime. It unexpectedly solved, I'll put that in quotes, solved the crime. 
But I think probably they've been sitting on this film and they figured, okay, now is the time to bring this out because of Serial and the jinx. There's demand for this kind of entertainment. And even if it means that we have to bring it out before Steve Avery goes home, now's the time. I mean, I think in, in some ways some ways I agree. In other ways, I think like the the leaving sort of the mental image, I think in both Serial Season 1 and Making a Murderer of these people who may or may not be guilty sitting in jail, you know, potentially for the rest of their lives, and especially Brendan Dassey. I think that's got kind of a resonance and a little a little more staying, at least with me, than crazy Robert Durst, like, burping and, you know, talking to himself in a, in a lavatory. Spoiler alert. <laughs> what were you going to say, Laura? You know, one of the things with all of these cases is sort of some of the satisfying ending that people are looking for is happening outside of the actual, you know, podcast or television show or documentary or whatever. It's not happening on Reddit? Is that what you're telling No, me? no, no. I mean, like, you know, like, it, who knows? Somebody could come forward and, and have some information in Stephen Avery's case. You know, something could happen. You know, Robert Durst was going all over. You know, he got arrested finally for, was it the ex-girlfriend or friend? Susan Berman. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, some of this is playing out in, you know, the news after these cases end, probably as a result of you know, in some cases, more attention being put on these cases through these documentaries. Right. And I, I don't think we're ever going to get, you never know. You know what? We we could end up getting what happened with The Staircase, where, which I've also gotten a lot of emails about this. It's called The Staircase, guys. Kevin and I watched it on Sundance Documentaries. You can perhaps find it by just searching the web and finding out where you can find it. Totally worth watching. But in that documentary, also like a multi-part documentary, they did go back 10 years later or whatever and make some extra episodes based on some developments that had happened um, in the case. And that was an interesting case to me talking about the conflict because it wasn't whether or not it was Michael Peterson or someone else. It was whether or not it was Michael Peterson or a horrible accident. And in that series, I went back and forth like 18 times before making my decision about whether or not I thought he was guilty. And there was that kind of continuing conflict. And then they came back at the end, and there are still questions about that. Well, some of the delays were because of science. But even though you had DNA, which exonerated Avery of the rape, it still took 18 years. Right. So, And I can't imagine, like, what... You know, even in my to create something, what piece of evidence could you uncover that exonerates him of this murder? It would be somebody else being found. Yeah, yeah, to have done it. A okay. Confession. Now we're going to talk about serial season two, episode four, "The Captors." A quarter of the way through the season now, we assume. We actually don't know exactly how long the season is going to be, I think. Sarah has brought us back to Pakistan to explain some more about the people on the other side of the door of the room in which Bo Bergdahl is being kept. We heard some of the Taliban's perspective in episode two, but focused a lot on the state of play on the ground. It's pretty clear. I think we've come to realize now we need to accept that Sarah is not going to be flying over to Pakistan or Afghanistan to report any of this story. She's not going to be interacting with Bo Bergdahl directly, I don't think. How does everybody feel about that four episodes in? Laura, how about you? You know, I still miss, I'll say it again, I still miss having her as more of the Nancy Drew-like protagonist going along. It it just seemed to make me more invested in listening to the story and also made me kind of 
I think the last season was more of a, you know, whodunit sort of mystery that sort of dragged me along. Not having the whodunit so much this time as more as, as I feel like I'm getting an education on Pakistan and Afghanistan. What about you, Toby? Where are you at on the storytelling devices, whether or not we're going to hear Sarah deliver any of this original reporting? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I... I... I'm finding it a little a little frustrating. I I wish there was a question that I knew that they were trying to answer. Uh, that seems a little unclear to me. It also it seems like a lot of the stuff is already in the can. I mean, it seemed like part of season one was the idea that from week to week there might be some development that caused you to rethink what had happened before. You know, the only time that's come in was when Bergdahl was was informed that he was going to be uh, is going to undergo a general court martial, and then that was like a five minute tack on at the beginning, and it didn't change the next episode in any other way. So it's hard to put my finger on it, but it seems to lack a little bit of the vitality maybe that season one did. Well, I'm not among those who've given up on serial season two just yet. I, I Gathering from what I'm reading on Twitter and Facebook, uh, you know, some people don't have the patience for it. Again, I think, we're again, we're only a quarter of the way through. We may get to the end and look back and see what was being set up and have an appreciation for it. I do understand that it's hard to figure that out. But you're right. I have come to accept that, yeah, this isn't going to be the same style of storytelling where, right, she's not going to go to the, the crab crib in... in the in, crab coochie tent? Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> that isn't going to... You're right. That isn't going to happen. So it's going to be a, a totally different kind of storytelling. And, and, you know, to me, that's fine because that the promise of serial was not that it was every season was going to be a crime mystery or even a mystery. It was going to be a story that could be told over 12 episodes. Right. And, you know, if Sarah is Robert Redford, season one is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and season two is All the President's Men. It's deep. What were you going to say, Toby? I, I kind of wonder, based on sort of public reaction, both to Serial season two and then to like Making a Murderer and the, the Jinx, if some of the or a lot of the appeal of the first season was sort of really high-end true crime type of stuff. And whether it's just that change from from that that subject matter to something different has has taken away something from season two. Well, in some ways that benefits all of us because, you know, I've always sort of felt like, you know, true crime has always been really, really popular. But in the literary space, it's been sort of marginalized unless you're talking about, you know, Truman Capote. Um, But I'm definitely seeing more of a. You know, we talked about this last year, more of a sort of socialization that everybody is fascinated by true crime stories. I There there might be something there, but, you know, to me, I don't think this season isn't good. It's just it's different. And I think that people aren't necessarily flexible necessarily when it comes to what they decide is good or addictive. Kevin. I agree with you, but I'm also with Toby on this is I'm not sure what the question is that we're being asked and where we're going. We keep hearing about this Zoom and well, I, we we keep talking about the Zoom. Well, yes, that's true. We keep <laughs> expecting and waiting for we're what the ones that who, is. Yeah, we're the ones. Who that, are I mean, but that's that. the one sort of promise that we were given. And you know, it's funny. I just listened to uh, on the way in. I went back and listened to the last minute of episode three to hear the coming up on, because I was thinking that the that episode four was going to be the okay. Here's the diplomatic stuff, and we're starting to get the zoom out. And there was a couple of quotes in that preview of of David Rode, but there was a lot of other stuff in there that um, it's, there was you know it was a woman who sounded like she was a a foreign diplomat and maybe another soldier, but 
that was not part of this episode. And again, it's being teased as episode five is we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know where that is, but I think hopefully that's that's where we're going, I think. We got one really interesting tease of that, I think, this episode. I thought the most interesting moment of the episode was when she was describing having talked to the people who were holding, you know, through through other channels who were holding Bo, and that she was describing communications they were getting ostensibly from someone in the U.S. government, and it wasn't really clear. And there was that point at which it was like, what do we care if you kill him? We've lost hundreds of other people. Just go ahead. Just go ahead and kill him. And I'm thinking, is she going to be chasing? Like, who was that a tactic, first of all? Was it a tactic or was it for real? Who was it that was having that conversation? Are we going to be retracing that? And I I thought that was a big And and who was it that actually came in later and said, no, 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 hold on to him? Exactly. That was another sort of mystery there that the the sort of tactics of that and the and the what that meant. And I thought that was really this is why I think I'm not ready to give up because this really could all be prologue to what the bigger story is. Right. It certainly could be. Okay, so let's talk about David Rode. Laura, very compelling character. New York Times reporter, I thought a very reliable narrator when it came to sort of filling in his experience. We got to hear him interacting directly with Sarah and their repartee, you know, when he talks about having told the the people keeping him captive that he had done this reporting on Muslims being executed elsewhere. And they were like, that just makes it even worse. And she's like, no, you missed the point. That's not why I told you that story. <laughs> did you enjoy their interaction? Did you like hearing this interview? What did you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, sort of enlightening to hear about, again, I'm coming into this, I wouldn't say blind, but I have, like I said, a very superficial knowledge of this area of the world. It was really interesting to hear the Haqqanis compared to the Sopranos of Afghanistan. You could get the Nestle water, and that they're making the Nestle water in Pakistan, which was also kind of interesting. Um, I think they're just bottling. I don't think they're actually making <laughs> they, water they, there. They, they are purifying the water. I know you don't know a water. lot about what's happening there, but you don't actually make water. Whatever they're doing. But I took from it that that he was almost brought in to maybe lend some credibility to Bo's story for people that are questioning if Bo's story is really authentic and the people that are like, you know, he's just full of it and could have made this up and we have no way to really know what really happened to him. Because I'm thinking, what's the purpose of this guy being interviewed? And I I thought it's sort of, you know, kind of the bolster. Again, this is an episode where we're now flipped back to feeling, well, I was anyway more sympathetic towards Bo. And this sort of helped that along. What did you think, Toby, listening to David Rhodes' story? What was your reaction to that part of the episode, that interview? I thought it was interesting. I thought it was somebody who's a little bit more aware of what was going on around him than Bo was to kind of give that some context. The thing that really kind of stuck with me, to be honest, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the thing that was the impetus behind Road escaping was his interaction with the guy who ended up being in charge of Bergdahl for the entire time. So Road gets, you know, a few hours with him and is like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. And then Bergdahl ends up being under his, you know, watch for five years. Right. That was actually really, I thought, very poignant that his escape may very well be also what led to Bergdahl's being treated the way that he was treated. That was that was really sort of like a stunning connection that she was able to make. fool me once, they may say, 
in Pakistan. I don't know. Well, let's talk about the Haqqani, because um, I think that Sarah did what she did in Serial Season 1, where she was like, the bear with me while I try to explain this to you. You know, like, like she did with the telephone records, like, this is going to be boring. But I actually didn't think it was boring. It needed I needed to focus. I had to stop listening to it while I was doing other things and actually just like only listen to it so I could follow it. But these characters who sort of have this very complicated relationship with the government, with the military, who are able to drive past military outposts and wave to the soldiers as they drive by, who are being asked to sort of be the buffer between Afghanistan and Pakistan to keep India at bay, and who are also criminals. It's a really, really interesting set of characters. Toby, what did you think about this whole description of the Haqqani? Do you think it it bogged the story down to have her stop and explain all that, or did you find it interesting? No, I thought it was pretty interesting. And, you know, I I guess I didn't find it that surprising. I kind of feel like, especially like during the Cold War, that was kind of the way our foreign policy was, is we would get these people who we don't necessarily agree with, but who we think we can use to further our aims, and we'd wink and nod or actively support them. And so I think that it's not too surprising that it's that way. It's not... It's a little tough since Pakistan is sort of nominally our ally, that they wouldn't be more aggressive in advocating for our interests. But, uh, you know, I I guess in the end, not too surprising. But it sounds like at one point the Haqqani were nominally our ally as well. I mean, she sort of mentions that at one point. Well, that's the whole, yeah, it's it's the whole story. First, they're against the Russians. Now they're, whoever, whoever's occupying their territory. And then, you know, this goes back to what, like the 1600s, right. you know, like the British come in and they get kicked out. And Soviets come in, they get kicked out. Now we're there. Right. Yeah, we gave them all those uh, surface-to-air missiles um, during the Soviet invasion and we created that army. But, you know, I'm, Laura hit it uh, that the best description that Sarah gave was to call them the Sopranos of the Arab world. Actually, it was the New York Times that said that. But that said so much because uh, – it, it says, okay, these guys, and I think Americans, we understand this. It says these guys are savvy and sophisticated and ruthless. And there's a lot of moving parts like, ah, I get that. I don't have to know why Tony has this complicated relationship with the FBI agent that comes in to visit him. It's good drama. But you kind of understand, oh, okay, there's, there's something happening here. As opposed to it just being, well, there's the U.S. and then there's the Taliban. There's all this other stuff going on. And I can imagine them going, hey, T, why don't I just take this guy out in the back and we whack him? This isn't the only time. Is that not a good, was, am I not supposed to do impressions anymore? No, that's that, okay. okay. <laughs> it's encouraged. Uh, this isn't the first time I've heard of the Haqqani Network. It seems like they've got their hands in a lot of stuff. I know when Seymour Hirsch has been uh, reporting for The New Yorker about things going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan, the Haqqani Network comes up again and again. So it's not just this one thing with Bo Bergdahl or sort of local politics, but they've They've uh, been in the mix in a bunch of, like, larger situations. One of the things that I thought was very interesting about the episode was there was this entire section where we addressed, and, and, you know, in her interview with David Rode, the obsession that the Haqqani, that the people in that region had with drones and the obsession they had with the way we treated our prisoners of war and not necessarily even, you know, people who were terrorists, just people who had been turned over by their own government because they were troublemakers, and then we brought them to Guantanamo. And then these became the object lessons that young people are taught, and then they don't have any sense of nuance. We heard about the the cook, the older man, who was sympathetic and kind, you know, to a degree. And David Rode and Bergdahl both described this younger generation— who did not have any feelings other than anybody who isn't us 
is bad and is evil. So let's talk about the the first part of it, which is the maybe perhaps an enhanced understanding of that feeling, given the fact that you could hear drones overhead in this region all the time, that they don't communicate with phones, that they know to walk alone, because if you have like a group of people, you could be a target for a drone. And this environment of fear that people are operating in anyway. And whether or not that sort of is informative when it comes to this broader conversation about the Haqqani, this broader conversation about Taliban fighters. And what did you guys think of that entire section where where she sort of pulled apart some of that stuff? Well, I was really struck by the story of the two young guys who were picked up. I think they were just like poets or something or writing something that people didn't like. And I feel like there there does seem to be little hints. Again, I'm always looking for the big picture. She keeps dropping little hints in about prison conditions and how people have been treated. Right back to the beginning when we have the first episode and the guy, the, the initial guy who caught Bo was saying, oh, we treated him well because we treat people well here. There seems to be this sort of recurring theme. And I thought it was really interesting when she was talking about those two young men she threw in, and we turned them into terrorists. She, yeah, she did not. She was not in any way equivocating. She just, she just and said that. I was, I was, I was like, whoa, okay, where are we going with this? And I feel like I, you know, I'm looking for the bigger picture here and the zoom, and um, curious to hear if we're going to hear more stories like that. What did you think about that, Toby? Uh, well, it's not good for the hearts and minds effort. I don't think it's a dystopian existence that they have. You know the flying robots who can, you know, rain down death. I mean, that's that's something from a science fiction movie, and but that's their reality. I was just going to jump in and say that if you took this out of uh, Pakistan and put this on, a, on a, a planet and did a science fiction thing, it has all these elements. And, you know, if we, we, if we can remove sort of the, the nationalistic and the patriotic uh, overtones that we have and just looked at it as that kind of a complicated story, you could really understand you know, why people on this planet or in the, in the desolate desert are fearful of the invisible thing in the sky that can kill you. And because it does, because it does. Right. You know, regardless of whose side you're on. And meantime, the Haqqani are acting like the mob and they're moving money and they're friends with these guys, but not with those guys until they need them. And, you know, it's um, it, it goes to, 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 to point out we really don't know. Most of us really don't know and understand what life is like there and, and why not why we're there and fighting, but what the situation on the ground is there. Like we have to admit in, in this time of war, we did not as Americans have to sacrifice an awful lot. There are the families that had to sacrifice their their loved ones in the military and they're the only ones that did we didn't have to have rationing or aluminum foil drives or stuff like other generations did it was very easy for us we have to send our dogs into combat we right where did we sacrifice we have longer lines at the airport and we have to take our shoes off and really that's about it and we don't understand except for those families who really have sacrificed the rest of us haven't but there are people who are living throughout the countryside in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and they're just they keep looking up at the sky because a drone could come at any time. Yeah, I, I think that for me, I think that David Rode and Bergdahl have both done a really good job of explaining. You know, when they they talk about how there are those young men there who don't have any sympathy, any empathy, any everything is just square. Like if you are not exactly like us, you're an animal. 
And I feel like what we saw a little bit of is how the people in power, including the Hekanis, have helped cultivate that mentality for their own devices. Because, you know, it's not like the nuanced smart guys who have a broader understanding of what things used to be like who are sent to guard Bo Bergdahl in this house. It is these young men who have only grown up in this cultivated culture, this cultivated ideology that I understand how it could be easily cultivated when there are flying robots in the sky that could kill you any minute. I don't empathize with it. I'm not saying I would definitely do the same if I were in their situation, but I understand it in a, in a new way. Uh, I guess I wanted to say t- two things. One is I, I, I think not losing track of, of 9-11 and the sort of part that that played into things is, is is kind of important because without that I you know I don't think we we would be there, but you know the second thing is 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 that these younger guys I mean this is basically I assume what they know you know if you're a 22 year old 2000 and you know was it like 15 years ago so you know since you were six or seven on this has been your existence has been with this sort of faceless enemy killing people who you probably know so the fact that they would be radicalized. Again, it's not it's not to say what they do is fine or, or I'm supportive of what they do or whatever. But if you're surprised that this happens, mm-hmm. I, I think you're just not you're not thinking it through. But Broad pointed out this is a civil war within Islam, and, and we rarely see it that way. We we see it as Islam against the West because it sometimes gets played out with that. That's why you have you know the example of those young guys who are radicalized, who are paramilitary. And then you have, you know, someone else from the village, an older guy who comes in and is trying to, you know, basically have a political discussion with them to say, and with them, politics is is religion and whatnot. But, you know, to give the other side, we, a lot of people don't know the difference between Sunnis and Shiites. Right. And, and it's like, well, if you ask, were it the Sunnis or the Shiites, Al-Qaeda? Was Saddam Hussein Shia or Sunni? A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people couldn't figure out why we're saying, oh, well, Saddam Hussein, we're going way off tracker. I understand this. But Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11. It's like, he's a, a Shiite and the rest are Sunni you, or Sunni and Shia. I don't even know. I mean, if you're going to get political, you should just Google this. Google how many people know where Benghazi is who talk about Benghazi. Yeah. Anyway, that's but a About as many topic. know where Manitowoc County is. So one of the things that we heard about this week, a couple weeks ago, we had heard a lot of, you know, really grisly details of Bo's captivity. But That section of this episode was very different than it was when Sarah was talking about that first year. And she made that difference between this first year in captivity and then there was the first year and then there was the rest of the time. We heard about that story with the plywood. We heard about him trying to, um, you know, rust out the bars of the cage. We heard about his attempts, less vigorous attempts to sort of change his own circumstances. What did you think of that part of the episode, Laura? Was that as compelling to you as, as I found it to be? Yeah, actually, this was one of the uh, parts of the episode that actually I really I found myself kind of cringing and the uh, 60 to 70 razor blade cuts at a time. And this guy, you know, calling him the wife of a dog and torturing him. And it really felt to me I could feel, you know, he's been there for a year. He's now there. It seems like an eternity. He's had to stop thinking about time because he can't even deal with thinking about time. I could start to feel how helpless he must have felt. Wow. I I just I'm curious to know more as we go along about his medical condition when he came back. And I mean, is he scarred all over his body from this? Um, I don't know. But I thought that was fascinating. Toby, what did you think? His description of the 
lack of anything to think about or do, to me, sounded, and I hate to say this, it sounds so dumb, but it did. It sounded worse than being cut with razor blades because then at least something is happening that you can you know, focus on. What, what did you think of that, of that part of the episode? Yeah, it's interesting. And I also, well, I had a, I had a few reactions, one of which was, you know, suddenly the time frame changes quite a bit from where we've had, you know, we kind of went from like almost an hour to hour thing when he escaped and then was captured. And then his first year gets like a full episode. And then here we're talking about years and sort of taking these these individual little things to illustrate what happened. And I guess uh, one of the questions I had is, is, is this sort of common stuff or are you picking out the things that sort of stick in your mind as these like sort of pinnacles of, of suffering? And the other thing is, is that, you know, there, there's a lot like New York State now has changed the way you can the conditions under which people can be put into solitary confinement, especially juveniles. All the research shows that solitary confinement and the lack of stimulus very, very quickly breaks you down. And I think that's, you know, when the, when uh, Rode talks about how conditions of his of his being captured have been a little bit different, that this would be like this huge success story for the Army, that this guy was able to endure this for that period of time and, and, and come away psychologically intact. Yeah, I think that that was really uh, an interesting point that Sarah brought up talking to the guy in the CERT team, I think it was, who said just the fact that Bergdahl is alive uh, shows that his state of mind is strong. That was fascinating. And, and, the re- and it actually makes a lot of sense. If he had lost it, he wouldn't be alive uh, because he would have spiraled. You know, it's kind of like whether you're um, a psychopath or something like that. You won't, you won't, you don't actually function in real society. Well, if if you had gone nuts, then you wouldn't be able to think about eating and drinking. You would have tried to choke your way out. You would have done something irrational. And they also talked about the fact that you know, had there not been the questions about the circumstances under which he left. This would have been considered one of the greatest success stories of all time about a POW because this was like one of those Vietnam jungle camps. It was as bad or worse than the worst that that guy had ever encountered. And, and, and Bergdahl was alone. Yeah. There, there wasn't the other people there. Right. Um, yeah, which I pointed out like two episodes ago. So thank you, Sarah, for coming around. Well, she must be listening to us. <laughs> she must be listening. No, you're right. And it's like this seems to be the recurring theme. Because of the way Bergdahl left in the dust one, it has tainted everything, and, and it's the way people perceive him. And no matter what is, we, we find out in episodes two and three and four and how horrible it is, there are some people who have zero sympathy for him because of that, despite the, the fact that the rest of his story is really compelling. It, it's, it's really f- amazing because Bergdahl's story mimics the monomythic journey, you know, the, the circle of that journey, what's sometimes called the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell. Now, I'm not, I mean, if I'm calling Bergdahl a hero, I don't mean pin a medal on him in, in the military, but if you think about the structure of narrative, you start off with your protagonist who has a call to action. He first resists that call, and then he steps out, crosses the threshold, right? He leaves the base. He goes, and then he's captured, and he's brought to the underworld, the supernatural, which is his his time in captivity. You have the road of trials, which is all of him sharpening the nail. And then they call this the being in the belly of the whale. And then like all hope is lost. 
then on, on the return trip, usually there's some intervention from a, a hero or someone who comes and rescues the protagonist and then brings him back. And we're like, it's it doesn't check off every box, but it's really interesting that that is that's his journey. He went out and was captured, and it's a very it's a classic tale. It's Orpheus, it's Ulysses, it's it's Arthur, it's Luke Skywalker, it's all the same things. And he was transformed. I mean, the thing that struck me about his transformation was when he talked about how he didn't want to tell himself stories. I know what I would do if in that situation I would try to relive every episode of Game of Thrones that I'd ever watched just to entertain myself or something just to keep the mind going. And he said, I used to be a fantastical thinker, and that's how I got in this situation, and I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to think about nothing and focus. And that's like a transformation in a way. And again, I think that there will always be people who cannot look at the story through any other lens with their confirmation bias other than that he's a traitor. And I don't want to discount that opinion, but there is something of a human journey here that I also agree with you is is pretty fascinating. And I can respect that opinion, though. It, it will get in the way of the listener understanding the story. Right. If you're fixated on that. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. The the fantastical thinker aspect, if you go out and read some of the stories, there was a really good story in the Washington Post um, that talked with some of Bo's friends, and there was some journals that they had of his. And it sounded like every year he had some new grand plan of something he was going to go do, and he'd leave and come back. And so it sounds like, in the end, that same idea of leaving the base, which is something he had done many other times in his life when something came up that he felt like he wanted to do, he's definitely come out the other side differently. Uh, he sounds like a lot of the people who are uh, in Into the Wild by uh, John Krakauer, which was about um, Chris McCandless, who wandered around the country and, and met all these people and then ended up, uh, spoiler alert, dying in the Alaskan wilderness. But he also... He Jesus also, Christ, Toby! Uh, every time! <laughs> hey, this time I warn people. Uh, but, uh, but also in this book, he just talks about how this is like not an uncommon thing for particularly young men. And he, he brings up Everett Ruess, who, who traveled around the Southwest. But this kind of sense of wanderlust and uh, as looking for adventure and sort of turning your back on society... Much like the hero's journey, it's another one of those sort of recurring themes. Yeah, and also an impatience with regular life. I mean, that's sort of something, all the pop culture things you referenced, it's sort of, we always see, you know, the Luke Skywalker at the beginning thinking like, this life might be fine for you, but I was meant for something else. You know, that's usually a part of it is that sense of what works for other people doesn't work for me. And I think that we know that that's the case with Bo Bergdahl. I mean, he like left home at what, 17 or 18 years old to go like live with those coffee shop people? I mean, he, there's a lot of stories about him. He didn't join the circus, but he did something very odd for a while. Yeah, he had, he, it was, yeah. it was always like, I'm here now, but this might be okay for you, but I'm, you know, it's, he, he's one of those. I mean, we know people like that in our own life. And, uh, I think that's where the hero often starts in those stories. Anyway, those that you referenced with your lofty, very public radio Joseph Campbell reference that you made a little bit earlier. Hey, man, we're 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 smart crime writers on series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I would like to talk just about a little bit of a summation about where we are in serial right now. How are you guys feeling? We had a week off where we got to like indulge ourselves with an entirely different story and conversation, and now we're back and we're sort of back in this story. And rather than grade the episode, I just like to check in. Like, where are we with this? I'm seeing a lot of stuff. So I've been seeing a lot of tweets that say, like, RIP, serial. I'm seeing other people. Uh, a lot of them, I follow a lot of journalists. A lot of them are journalists saying that, you know, there are a lot of 
people missing out on what is really going to be shaping up to be a tremendous story and that we're hearing some aspects of this that we need to be hearing. And if you're turning it off, you're doing yourself a disservice. I'd love to know where you guys are with the plotting, with the pacing, with the story, with how it's going so far right for you right now with Serial Season 2. Laura, I'm going to start with you. I feel like I need to stick it out. Um, I feel like she's setting us up for something. We do a podcast about it, so you need to stick it out. I need to stick it out. I need to maintain. Yeah, exactly. Um, Panel just got a lot smaller, Toby. uh, (laughs) um, I feel like she's setting us up with a lot of complex information, and it's a lot to digest. And I'm hoping that once we all sort of have this base of knowledge, um, that it's going to go somewhere. Uh, One of the other things that I've been thinking about, and it's not necessarily related Related to this particular story so much as she had so much scrutiny leading up to season two and everybody was trying to figure out what case she was writing about and who she was interviewing and it sounded like from some of the interviews she gave it was really stifling for her and she you know wanted to just be left alone so going back to I think it was Kevin earlier talking about how this this season is kind of in the can my sort of theory is that it is in the can, and she's out working on season three without everybody, everyone like bothering her and looking over her shoulder oh, all the time. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. So that's my theory. Huh, that's really interesting. So, Toby, I'm going to check in with you right now. Where are you at? Well, I got, I've got two thoughts, one of which is it, it's interesting. It's definitely interesting. And, and the difference for me is when each one is over, I'm not like kind of chomping at the bit for next Thursday. You know, I, I, I take it in. I listen to it twice because we do this podcast, but it doesn't have sort of the propulsive, you know, momentum that I think season one did. But my other reaction is she got pitched so many ideas. There's no way that this is going to be a dud. I mean, she she had so many options that, you know, I, I'm willing to, like, put my trust in the fact that this is going to end up being worthwhile. It's just hard to anticipate what that's going to be right now, but maybe that's good. So you are, um, you've got faith, it sounds like? I, I, th- well, that's my mom's name, so I don't <laughs> <laughs> You've got faith in Sarah. I Kennedy, have confidence like. in her. Okay. Yes. Okay. What about you, Kevin? I'm a little nervous in the sense that uh, I'm hoping that it pays off and it's going in a direction and I keep saying that it is, and I'm hoping that I'm not wrong, but just because the flavor is different doesn't mean that it's not a quality podcast. You know, if season one is law and order, season two is frontline on PBS, and they're both really good. Toby's right. She's got a gazillion pitches. There's something in this story. I wish I knew what it was. I wish I knew where we're going. We haven't had that big cliffhanger like we've had before in season one. There could be at any moment something that flips the script and we're like, Man, this is amazing. I don't know if we're going to get there. So I'm I'm still hopeful. You know, as a writer, I got to give the other writer the benefit of the doubt. You know, we're still mid-work. Some things work and some things haven't worked, but she's in the a quarter of the way through the story. And um, I would like to know where we're going, and that would make me feel better, but I'm a little nervous. I'm nervous that it, it could be bad, and then everybody just wants to reset for season three. I am trying to enjoy... The moment in the episode, you know, we talked about whether or not at the end of season one, whether or not those of us who weren't super thrilled with the ending, whether or not it was worth the journey. So I'm trying really hard to just, I mean, it's a beautifully produced piece of journalism. It's a beautifully produced show. Like, it's really, it's fun to listen to the moment. I do miss, as Toby mentioned, that feeling of that, like, Christmas Eve anticipation 
that I had a year ago on Wednesday nights when I knew the next episode of Serial was going to come out the next morning. And I was like, can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. And I would schedule a walk, you know, like I'd be like, I'm going to be at work late tomorrow because I got to go for an hour long walk so I could listen to Serial in the morning. I don't have that feeling. I don't feel like... um, you know, I was halfway through listening to an episode of another podcast, and I finished that before I listened to Serial this time. And Serial, by the way, was way better than the other podcast I was listening to. So even though I'm giving each individual episodes like A's, you know, I don't have that Christmas Eve feeling, and I really want that. And I'm hoping that she'll bring something that that makes me feel that way again. You know who dropped an Easter egg, and I haven't, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned this, was Rabia at the end of your last episode of Undisclosed that you hosted, where she said that she knows stuff about the Bo Bergdahl case that she hopes Sarah gets to. Yeah. So she is a fellow at the New America Foundation, and she is privy to some of the back chatter around the time of the negotiations. And she is sure there is something much bigger. that. But she, what she said to me off the air was that she just hoped Sarah was able to get to that. And I told her, if Sarah isn't able to get to that, you need to come on our podcast and tell us what it is. So she probably has national security clearance and can't do that. But who knows? Maybe someday. One thing, you know, as we're as I was listening to everybody talk about this, this season reminds me more of like, you know, like a Tom Clancy novel. Like, you know, those novels that you have to stick out. Remember, like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo and everyone's like, you got to stick it out to three quarters of the way through. And then all of this setup comes together and you're like, whoa. But you really, I mean, I, it took me about three quarters of the way to get through The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and that was an awesome book. But it's a lot of dense information up front, and it's slow going because you're setting the scene. So this, I think, maybe is going to be the same thing, or I'm hoping. All right. Well, we all have hope. Sounds like we all have faith, which is very, very good. So you know what? You know what it's time for? It's time for us to do my favorite part of the show, a little thing I like to call The Crime of the Week. <laughs> That was your little law and order dance that you just did for us. (laughs) I just want to ask you, Kevin, if you were one of the characters in Law and Order, which one would you be? Oh, what's uh, Ice-T's character's name? (laughs) Finn? Finn, yeah, Finn. Kevin Finn, I would be. I'd be Finn. Ice-T always just, uh, his character just says the same dialogue as everyone else, but just sounds like Ice-T when he's He's just way cooler when he's talking about, like, pulling the LUDs on the payphone. (laughs) Okay. So ends the fugitive status of Ethan Couch, nabbed along with his mother in Mexico. He is, of course, that Texas teen who claimed he had affluenza in his defense for killing three people in a drunk driving accident. Couch failed to report to his probation office and was spotted on video at a beer bash, which violated the conditions of his probation. His mom is now in custody in Texas, where she claims she broke no state laws. And ironically, the kid who stayed out of prison for arguing that he was a spoiled brat is fighting extradition now and staying in a Mexican jail on purpose. So here's my question. One can argue they are too rich to be held accountable, according to this case. Should someone, like a Brandon Dassey, be able to argue they are too poor to be held accountable? Kevin, what do you think of the proposition of that as a defense? Oh, poor, that's that's really good. You know, you didn't, well, poor fluenza. Um, uh, that's really interesting because I guess if you can argue one, you should be able to argue the other. We're going to split hairs. There's probably more credence to being poor and not understanding the consequences, the legal consequences of your actions, as opposed to being a spoiled brat with all this money. And, you know, it goes to um, the things we talked about last week, about the difference between the kind of justice you're able to afford if you're rich and if you're poor. I don't 
think it's very clear exactly how rich they are is that they always say they're affluent, but it's not like we see them driving around and, you know, like with limousine drivers or anything. That's a very funny Well, he wasn't so affluent that he had his chauffeur take him home that night when he killed three people. That's exactly He was just affluent enough. So, Laura, what do you think of this idea, this proposition of poor fluenza? Oh, I don't know. I'm just so irritated by this affluenza case that um, I can't even think about poor fluenza. I mean, this mother, seriously, after the entire country is just absolutely calls you out on the carpet about your bad parenting, you go and take your kid to Mexico to avoid once again being held accountable. I, it, it just makes and, me... And they, she threw a party for him before yeah, they went away. Before It's just ridiculous. Um, but, you know, and to, back to the, you know, being too poor, you know, there's been a lot of stories recently about, you know, modern day debtors prisons and people that are being kept in jail because they can't pay fines. Um, so there is a big divide in the criminal justice system. And that's happening right here in our home state of yes, New Hampshire, even exactly. to some extent. Okay, Toby, what do you think of this idea of could someone like Brendan Dassey or, or some of the other people, defendants that we see in some cases that are coming to light now, could they claim they are too poor to really understand the consequences of their actions. Yeah, I guess they could. I mean, I, I think what this kind of points out to me, I think, is I think there's a strain of thought amongst some people that people who are wealthy deserve it and they are somehow, you know, superior. It's, it's, and that people who are poor, likewise, you know, there's a reason for that. And, 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 it, and it gets propagated through generations. And I, I think it's 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 kind of like racism, I guess, or whatever. I think that sets the conditions for a kid like the affluenza kid to be like, oh, okay, well, you know, he deserves a second chance. You know, he's got a bright future ahead of him. You know, his parents are pillars of the community, whatever. And that's the kind of thing that Brendan Dassey does not get. You know, it's it's not like, oh my God, you know, Brendan can do these great things if we, you know, he deserves a second chance. There's none of that, and I think that's. In some ways, I think it's a societal thing. You know, I think we we look at middle class or wealthier kids as having all this potential, all this stuff to give. Poor kids, I don't think they're looked at the same way. Very well said. It, it is well said, and it's one of the reasons why when there are stories about trials that have to do with well-to-do people, they're highly publicized trials because there is conflict among the audience for those cases as to whether or not that person should be put away. You know, we had a very high-profile trial here recently involving a sexual assault at a Tony prep school. The defendant in that case actually wasn't wealthy, which is one of the most interesting aspects of the case, but it's very much the stage of these kids are ruining their whole lives. You know, are we going to ruin their whole life? Are they going? Whereas the conversation would be very different if you heard some of the things that this kid did and wrote to this victim, and it was different circumstances. I, I think a lot of these same people watching the trial would be saying, you know, who cares? Put them away. You know, because there because we, we do have that, and it is, and it, 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 I think it's tied to racism, even though it's, you know, it has to do, to do with class and money. And I, I think that you know one of the interesting things about the the Avery case and, and looking at it that way, my sense is that you can probably go to a lot of cities and find very very similar things where where people like a group of people or a family or a person is just sort of assumed to be trouble. Trouble, right, and th- and that their lives are kind of defined by that and their relationship with the law, and just because he happened to have this money from this lawsuit, this has suddenly been shown, and that's why we're getting a look at it. But I, I would guess that it's not as uh, infrequent as you would hope. Toby, are you speaking from experience? Are you the troublemaker in your town? Um, 
No, in, he's the in, rich kid, though. In, in Durham, New Hampshire, yeah. <laughs> I'm the Andrew McCarthy of Durham. <laughs> Don't we gonna make it rain in here? <laughs> we can't all be the ducky of our of our towns. We can it's only oh some of us. Oh my can. god. Rebecca has to mention John Cryer from Two and a Half Men. From Two and a Half John Cryer is not John Cryer from Two and a Half Men. John Cryer Just because he started following you on Twitter and <laughs> he was the exact Twitter follower that made you pass you pass on Twitter. me on Twitter. <laughs> you just had to bring that up. Ducky. This is a tough day for you. This Whoa. is like this Male is rivals. social media affluenza. Well, Hashtag Ducky forever. I can I can top that because I was followed by the lady who tells fortunes through asparagus. <laughs> <laughs> she's the asparamancer, and she's the only one in the world. You mean there's not two asparamancers? No, no. We got to get her on some of these cases so she can figure out who did it. Yeah, yeah. It's all with how you throw the asparagus. <laughs> did she say it was a case of stalking? <laughs> The question is, how does her pee smell the next day after she solves that case? Oh, no. <laughs> All right. We should probably end it on that note, I think, right? From the from the sublime to the ridiculous, back to the ridiculous, of course. That is what this podcast is all about. Before I let you go, Laura Bricker, how can listeners find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. It's L-A-R-A-B-R-I-C-K-E-R. I really want that asparamancer to follow me now. I'm not going to lie. It sounds pretty cool. It's something. <laughs> Toby, how can people find you on Twitter? It's at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin, if people want to tweet to you, maybe follow you so you can once again be the social media king of our house, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm not going to tell people. I'm just I kidding. Want... I turned off your mic for a second there. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I'm not going to tell people because, Rebecca, there's much more tranquility in the house if you have more Twitter followers <laughs> than I do because. I don't really care. <laughs> I love my Twitter followers, but, you know, I don't need extra ones. It doesn't make you feel as good about yourself as it makes me feel about myself, is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll, I'll take that. Well, if you do want to follow me on Twitter, and you should, because following me on Twitter is clearly what all the cool kids are doing, you can do so at Reb Lavoy. Our show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On, and on Facebook. Just search for Crime Writers On Serial. You can join the very lively conversation happening there. You can also send an email or a voice memo with your questions and comments to crimewriterson at gmail.com. Our theme music was performed by Rocksteady Freddy and the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. You can find out more about all the crime writers at our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, do some shopping with that Amazon link. You can even bookmark it. Use it all the time. It's a great way to support this podcast by buying the stuff you are planning to buy anyway. You can also check out our brand new Buy Our Books page. You can use the links there to buy books by me, Kevin, Laura, and Toby. And you will also be supporting this podcast and the writers on it. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. Leave a review on iTunes. We will catch you later. I would like to read to you a couple of our uh, recent reviews on iTunes and get your reaction. All right. Great podcast. I love listening to what each person on the podcast takes away from Serial. A lot of times I go back and listen to Serial again because of comments they made about different things in the episode that I totally missed. Love Crime of the Week as well. Keep it up, guys. Is that nice? Wow. Okay. Here's another one. I love these guys. Even Toby. (laughs) That's hard to believe. Poor Toby. That must have been before he started reading off the items. <laughs> really appreciate their measured but entertaining and intelligent views on cereal. 
but on crime writing, legal process, and so much more. It goes on and on and on, and it says wonderful things. But isn't it good to know that you also are loved? Even me. <laughs> Toby's getting a following now. It's, yeah. Um, <laughs> I am extremely disappointed. Nice. Yeah, this is uh, this reviewer does not love us. Okay. They should stick with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. Are they shilling for a book deal with Jay? Wow. Yeah. Mm. Wait, was she listening to our podcast? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 